as always, I'm very excited to see you today. Thank you, worship team, as well. I think I'm always so happy to be able to uh, preach after and speak with all of you about the Bible after hearing just good music and especially good songs that are just so encouraging and stoke our hearts to want to hear the word today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, um, please turn to Psalm uh, chapter 73. We're going to be covering the psalm in its entirety. I'm going to just start by reading it and then get right into it. Psalm chapter 73. A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. And therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you, and you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Please pray with me briefly. Father, thank you so much for the ways that you have blessed all of us, not only with your presence, by, but also through providing such a wonderful congregation and people both here and on live stream and just the opportunity we have to digest your word together and the opportunity that we have to know you more, to trust you more in dealing with difficult questions. 
please help us today to understand your word more greatly so that we would leave as better worshipers and more joyful congregants that we would be united to you and feel both the legitimacy and the enactment of your justice as well as the intimacy that you have granted to your people in salvation but through all of our lives until we see you in glory. Please bless this time in your name. Amen. According to a website, atheist.org, there are a number of contradictions within the Christian Bible that apparently prove it to be irrational. They listed about 15, while well, I can't go through all of them, they concern things from judicial punishment to divine mandates and the supposed unfulfilled promises of God. In a summary paragraph of their thoughts on these contradictions, they had this to say. What is incredible about the Bible is not its divine authorship. It's that such a concoction of contradictory nonsense could be believed by anyone to have been written by an omniscient God. To do so, one would first have to read the book, which is uh, not read the book, which is the practice of most Christians, or if one does read it, that they must dump in the trash can one's rational intelligence. To be an atheist, one need only to be able to laugh when such obvious nonsense is being offered as divine truth. Now, the irony of such a statement like that is that some of the most beloved minds of the 20th century, of Christianity's 20th century minds, has been that they were regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit through answering contradictions like that. Men such as C.S. Lewis, for example, had a restored sense of purpose when they discovered that the Bible can solve even the most difficult questions life has to offer and answer them on the Bible's own terms. C.S. Lewis himself, when he was an atheist, eventually when he became a Christian, had this to say upon meditating on his previous philosophical mind frame. He said, I used to be living like so many atheists or anti-theists in a whirl of contradictions. I maintained that God did not exist. I was also very angry at God for not existing. I was equally angry with him for creating a world. But a creature revolting against a creator is revolting against the source of his own powers, including even his power to revolt. It is like the scent of a flower trying to destroy the flower. No philosophical theory which I have yet come across is a radical improvement on the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When God created this world with his infallible mind and his unequaled power, he did not leave any room whatsoever for contradictions. His consistency was and is and continues to be always perfect. And what is more, us with his spirit inspired directly from his mouth scripture, he has condescended to that we might have answers to life's most difficult questions. And he has provided that knowledge and wisdom to us through his word and through his spirit that we would have joy in learning the answers to them. However, if you've been a Christian for very long, you'll know that that doesn't mean when you reach these contradictions that they are just easily handled or they're just brushed aside. They don't just prick your brain. They tend to tug on your heartstrings and lead you sometimes to 
either unfaithfulness at its worst or even at its best, simple frustration. They follow you around. It is an inevitability in the Christian faith that we will struggle with life's circumstances. We will struggle with lofty intellectual and spiritual questions. And we will struggle with personal doubt. And because of all of these things, we will struggle with trusting God. And that is where Psalm 73 begins, in which a righteous man begins to deal with difficult questions to God and as a consequence struggle with God's truthfulness and trustworthiness and even his own obedience. But yet he comes to the other side with a renewed sense of assurance in God's promises and a renewed sense of joy for God's justice and his intimacy with his people. So that's the point. If you're looking for a statement to sum up Psalm 73, it's this. That Psalm 73 assures believers of God's justice and nearness, no matter what occurs in our present reality. Psalm 73 assures believers of his justice and nearness, no matter what occurs in our present reality. Now in 28 verses, there's many, many ways that this can be divided up into points and subpoints and the like, and you'll see how well-structured this psalm is, but for the sake of uh, ease in just reading this, we're going to break it down in two very simple ways. The first section from verses 1 to 16 deals with the psalmist struggling through earthly observations, and the second half in verse 17 to 28 deals with the psalmist resting in divine insight. So we're going to start in verse 1 with the first half of the psalmist's thought, which is struggling through earthly observations. And before he begins these observations, he begins with an objective theological statement in verse 1, in which he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Asaph, the writer of this psalm, could be remembering his own Sunday school days, so to speak, in which he grew up to be trained as a leader in the temple. Asaph was a Levite, which means he was trained in the sanctuary of God to lead the people. And we have this psalm because he led the people in musical worship to God. And so it could be he's recalling, just like we do when we both teach the Bible to our children and catechize our children, the most fundamental and foundational truths of the Christian faith. And he begins with the most fundamental idea of God, which is that God is good. And he demonstrates his goodness to his people. Psalm 31:19 likewise says, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. Moses himself, the very famous leader of the Israelites, when God's very presence was revealed to him, it was so awesome and majestic that his face literally shone brightly and needed to be covered. And in Exodus 33:19, when that glory passed by him, it was described as God's goodness passing before him. You can see how God's goodness is at the very center of all Christian thought. It's who he is and what he has given to his people freely and graciously. And the psalmist specifies that Israel is too specific a word to clarify who God is good to. But specifically, he is good to those who are pure in heart. 
Though in one sense, it's a qualification for righteousness. We understand as a New Testament church that Jesus Christ has first made us righteous and then called us to righteousness. But the psalmist is more specific in that the righteous are specifically called pure in heart. They've been cleansed from their sins so that they can offer up pure and unadulterated worship to their God. And so in a psalm about a psalmist struggling, why does he start with that statement? Well, the reason that he starts with that statement is because Psalm 73 is the story of a man struggling to believe that principle in a fallen world. He's struggling to believe that God is truly good to the pure in heart when he observes things in this fallen world. And verses 2 and 3 sum up the particular issue that he is having by explaining that he is envious, that he is jealous. Now it might be that we end up admitting this or honestly speaking about this kind of desire in our own hearts so often that it's tend to be dulled down or watered down with just how serious it is. Every time a Lamborghini shows up at a red light beside us, it tends to be very easy to think to just want that is simply okay or fair. And in a sense, it is common, but that doesn't mean it's not serious. Proverbs 14.30 likewise says that a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. In the play Othello, William Shakespeare likewise called envy a green-eyed monster. And the idea of the greenness of the green-eyed monster is green was the color of sickness. It is a dissolving agent. It corrodes the soul. James 3.14 likewise says, Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. It's described as a gateway sin. It leads to so many other things that can be jeopardizing to not only the comfort, but even the obedience that somebody can have in their life with God. And even though the stakes seem to be that high, the psalmist can't help but inevitably come to the conclusion that he's envious because he can't help but seeing something. Verse 3 says that he saw the prosperity of the wicked. And in a Christian mind frame, and someone who believes in the God of Israel, that is a difficult concept to grasp when you compare it with places like Psalm 84.11, which says, The Lord gives grace and glory, and no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And so the question is, if that's true, if God really rewards the righteous, then why do rewards so frequently seem to come to wicked people? People who hate or disregard the creator of the universe. Because his observations seem to reveal just that. His observations take up the bulk of this first section and they start in verses 4 and 5 in which Asaph says that the wicked don't struggle. He says in verse 4 that they have no pangs. It means that they don't have any speed bumps on their road to sin. They do evil and they receive no consequences for it. The only hiccup seems to be their own mortality, but even their own mortality is like a deep drifting off into sleep. It doesn't come with pain. Likewise, he says that they are fat and sleek. If you have a New American Standard Bible, it says that their bellies are fat. 
The idea of fatness, which is mentioned twice in this psalm, also in verse 7, is an idea of plenty, of acumen, of having lots, of being comfortable, of being wealthy. Verse 5, he likewise says, they have no troubles and they receive no strikes. There's no strings attached to the evil that they have and there's no fallout. The prophet Job mentioned in the book named after him, likewise dealt with something like this when his friends who were supposed to comfort him after he lost everything in this world were supposed to help him to understand, but instead they told him that he probably was deserving everything he was getting. But Job likewise shows them a similar evidence as Asaph does in Psalm 73 where he tells them they have perfect families, wicked people. Wicked people have perfect resources, they have perfect health. And he sums up something similar in Job 21.13 when he says, They spend their days in prosperity, and in peace they go down to Sheol. Because of these kinds of benefits, Asaph observes in verses 6 and 9 that the wicked have become indecorously prideful. They are extremely prideful. Verse 6 says that pride hangs on them like a necklace and violence as a garment. The idea is that they're proud of their pride. They show it off like it's fashionable, like it's worthy of being expressed to everyone. They double down on that statement in the next verse, in verse 7, by saying their eyes are swelling and they have overflowing hearts. Their pride grows and grows because there's nothing whatsoever there to curb it. They always have more and more abundant opportunities to sin. And in verse 8, they constantly speak to others as if they assumed they were kings and rulers in this world. And that doesn't just extend to the way they think they can treat others, which is in violence and through scoffing, but it even gives them a supposed legitimacy to bring that kind of pride towards God himself. And so in verse 10, it says that they don't believe that God is going to respond to them in impudence at any period because he hasn't come into their lives up until this moment either. Verse 11 likewise says that maybe they think that it's not that God doesn't see, but that he either doesn't have the power to intervene, or, even worse, he doesn't care. Maybe it is that the supposed Most High God, which means the sovereign ruler, the God above all earthly mortal beings, maybe it is that that God can't help but miss sins here or there. And the wicked get to be the benefactors of that. And so Asaph concludes in verse 12 that these are the wicked, rich people who just keep getting richer. And before Asaph begins to explain how he's going to process this information and go into self-examination, it's worth taking a moment to try and empathize with the kind of envy that he's having. If I could ask you if you think that he's being unfair... Do you think it's unrealistic for a Christian to be thinking with this kind of mind frame? Carl Truman recently spoke something about this in a new book that he wrote concerning the historical roots of the sexual revolution. And 
In one section, he began to talk about the rise of technological advances to help with things like farming and things like other sorts of technology. And all of it comes down to the fact that our modern age has less of a dependence on the natural world. Speaking about that, he said this. He said that we all live in a world in which it is increasingly easy to imagine that reality is something we can manipulate according to our own wills and desires and not something that we necessarily need to conform ourselves to or passively accept. The point is that it's easy to see people living in mock sovereignty. And likewise, it's easy for us to think we live in a state of mock sovereignty. That it's easy to be comfortable, that it's easy to be fine, that it's easy to care for our families, that it's easy to receive financial gain. And when that doesn't happen to us and does happen to people that are sinners, that don't understand God, people that may actively hate God, it seems like we are missing out on something. And this world in which the observation of it is so easy to see when we just pull out our phone or look at our computer makes it so much easier for us to be envious of the wicked than it was for Asaph back then. We can see so much more of it. And so as Asaph begins to examine himself, it's easy for us to try and empathize with how he's examining, no matter how shocking his conclusions might be. And one of those shocking conclusions is seen in verse 13, maybe the most shocking thing he says in the whole psalm, which is this, that all in vain I have kept my heart clean and I have washed my hands in innocence. All in vain. Asaph is beginning to think of righteousness from a utilitarian point of view. If you don't know what utilitarianism is, the idea of it is thinking that all things are valued based upon their usefulness to us. It cares less about the attractiveness of something, but more that something is important because of its functionality or its personal benefit, its practical nature. Better technology is worth the price of a higher price tag because it makes life more manageable and more efficient. Eating something like organic or healthy food is worth coin and it's worth replacing my old favorite dishes because it's going to make me more healthy or live longer. That's utilitarian thinking. But utilitarian thinking is dangerous when it begins to be applied to righteousness. We don't act righteously because it helps us get something in this life. Though the Bible is actually very clear that righteousness often does lead to good consequences in this life. But its primary purpose is never to gain things in this life. And when its real primary purpose, which is to give glory to God alone no matter the cost, when that begins to be replaced by ideas of gain in this world, it becomes very easy, very, very easy to be envious. Righteousness becomes meaningful based on what it does for us now than what it does for God. And so as a result, Asaph begins to question whether his physical and emotional trouble is worth the spiritual cost it seems to come to him. And he says that in verse 14. This is a constant struggle for me. And it's beginning to spiritually weigh me down. 
But the last two verses of his spiritual observance is very interesting in the fact that the conclusion he immediately came to, the first practical step he took was actually just to keep it to himself. And he says in verse 15 and 16 two different reasons that he actually keeps it to himself instead of shouting it from the rooftops, instead of going to text someone to get a cup of coffee and just hash it out over a croissant. He doesn't do that. He waits for two reasons. Verse 15 says he doesn't do it right away because he doesn't want to bring others to doubt as well. He sees it as a betrayal of the people of God, that he might lead them astray in a different way, but the same kind of leading astray that unrighteous people are doing to the people of God in verses 10 and verses 11. He doesn't want to do that. And there's good wisdom there. It's a good example for us and for anyone who would desire to be a leader in any fashion. Asaph obviously wrote the song so we know that he shared his struggle eventually and publicly, but first he was patient and he thought about when to expose it for the good of others. It also reveals something very important, which is that clearly, though Asaph is struggling, he has a commitment to the glory of God that hasn't vanished. He was still concerned about the mission of God to a degree because he cares about the people of God being led astray by vain philosophies. So we need to remember that every time we would try to use this song to try and justify doubt within us or say that doubt is fine. It's common and it's inevitable, but that doesn't mean that it gets to be an excuse to detract from our purpose of glorifying God. And Asaph hasn't forgot that deep down within his heart. That's the first reason he stayed quiet. And the second reason is very simple. In verse 16, he's just exhausted. It's exhausting going through the regular patterns of life and also be bombarded with spiritual doubt. And so because of that, he remains quiet. And thus, in this first half of the psalm, these are the struggles of Asaph by which he observes the earthly prosperity of the wicked. And so naturally, before we see the conclusions he comes through from a divine perspective, we need to ask ourselves if our observations have led us to the same kinds of conclusions. Ask yourself which one of these verses hits home with you. In what ways have you been tempted to compromise spiritual obedience for the comforts of this world? What things do you see in the wicked that you believe should belong to the people of God? Ask yourself, why is it that unrepentant sinners seem to take more and more steps to security and comfort, meanwhile faithful and obedient, states, faithful and obedient saints seem to take more and more steps toward breakdown and frustration? I think John Calvin very eloquently and effectively explained this kind of synopsis when he said, The confusion of things which prevails in this world produces so thick a mist as to render it difficult for us to see through it and to come to the conclusion that God governs and extends his care to things here below. He admits that confusion in this world from a spiritual perspective is a commonality, but how is it that we get through the mist and come out on the other side more faithful and more obedient to God, not less? And it starts with considering and recognizing that we have a limitation, and the limitation is in our perspective. Consider this example. I hope it's helpful for you. Maybe it is that... 
one time when you were going out or either coming home from work or from the grocery store, from seeing a friend, and you stopped observing maps or GPS, and you took the wrong turn to get home to your house. And upon correcting your course and going the right way again, you start looking around. And even though it's just around the corner from your house, you notice, huh, I never knew that there was a Chick-fil-A that was like right there. I never knew that there was a park that was right there that would be great to have a picnic to. I didn't know there was a Cane's chicken just around the corner. We have a limitation in our earthly perspective. Even though our world has opened up so much in the 20th century, we still have serious limitations about what we can see and when we can see it. We can know a lot, but not everything. We can live in a place for 10, 20, 30 years, and we can still miss so many details so close to home. And it is so very true of not only our earthly perspective, but our spiritual perspective. We can think that we are incredibly mature Christians, and just around the corner, tragedy hits, and it's like we know nothing at all. I didn't know when I was observing this text that it would be so similar to the text that I got to be within you last time, the last time I was here, which is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. And I want to recall that to you because I think it'll be helpful here as well. For 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 and 18 says this, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they are passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. The point is that we need God's perspective for real clarification so we can look past the transient and we can look into eternal. And that breaks into Asaph's presentation of his doubts beginning in the second half of the psalm. Starting in verse 17, we see the psalmist rejoicing through divine insight. This is verse 17 to the end of the psalm and verse 28, rejoicing through divine insight. The essential break for Asaph begins with those words, until. And the word until is a measurement of time. The whole point should be to remind us that every single moment in this world is ordained and controlled by the sovereignty of God, and he has purposes for it. And the spiritual sp sight that we are supposed to be granted from God is supposed to help us get onto the divine schedule to have comfort that everything is happening according as it should be for everyone, for God's people and the people who aren't God's. And he has that when an outside force, God himself intervenes for him in a particular moment of time. And that moment of time is verse 17, when he goes into the sanctuary of God. It's not clear if Asaph going into the sanctuary of God, it's not clear if that was a direct divine answer like Job or it was simply a trip to the local synagogue in which he saw either the general common observances of teaching and learning and fellowship there or he went to do his own Levitical duties that he was called to as a Levite. Regardless, the whole point is very simple, which is that Asaph went to church. 
And I understand exegetically and properly that the practices of the Old Testament tabernacle and the New Testament church are very different in many different ways. But that doesn't stop us from observing Asaph's intention. And it makes us have a proper application of saying it is right to say the sanctuary of God and the church of God can be applied appropriately. And it's because when Asaph had a problem, he went to God's house where God has reminded people that he dwells with them. That he has condescended to them. That he loves them and teaches them and has plans for them. Plans for his glory primarily and consequentially for his people's comfort. And that's exactly what we do at church. It is that weekly reminder of our dedication to God and the fellowship that we have together, all reminding us of the joy that we have, not primarily in each other, but in being redeemed people together. And whatever particular part of the fellowship of the saints and reminding him of the primary worship of God as sovereign creator, whatever it was, it reminded him of this that the wicked have an expiration date. And that's explained in verses 18 to 20. Verses 18 to and 19 are very, very simple. And he explains it very poetically, which is saying that sin makes you slippery. It makes you ready to fall into danger in this life. And more than that, it guarantees damnation in the next life. No matter what ease this world gives you, it will grant you absolutely no comfort going into eternity. Every single day, every single one of us are one heart attack or one car accident away from being face to face with eternal God. And the believer has assurance that that is okay. The wicked do not, and they should not. Verse 20 might seem confusing and like it has nothing to do with this, but reading it from the New International Version, the NIV might make it a little bit more clear. The NIV in verse 20 reads like this, that the wicked are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. You can imagine some dreams that you've had that sound and seem like they last a very long time. You might have that common dream of it seems like you're falling endlessly and you suddenly wake up when you hit the ground. And something very similar is being poetically explained by Asaph when he says the existence of the wicked is like a bad dream to God. And as soon as he metaphorically wakes up, it's over. And their time on this earth is done. This is only the first of three divine insights that Asaph receives from God that explains to him this, that the wicked have never, ever been forgotten by God. But rather, God has allotted them. He's allowed them a time to live for either one of two reasons. Either one, that God is patiently giving them time to repent. Just like Paul explains in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, when he says God's patience is meant to lead you to repentance, he is giving the wicked time to repent. That's the first. And the second is expressed also by Paul in Romans chapter 2, 5, when he says the wicked are storing up wrath for themselves. They are giving more and more reasons to be punished by God. Paul continues to say this in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 9, verse 23, when he says that the destruction of the wicked will also make known the riches of his glory to the saints. 
that as they become punished, we will understand the salvation and thankfulness that we should have to God for not being punished. And that is why the wicked still exist, and that is why the wicked are given opportunities to sin. Not because God misses it, but because they are storing up wrath for themselves, or he is biding his time that they would repent. God is going to destroy the wicked, but he's going to do it in his own time. And he doesn't need mortals like us to question him on whether his time is right. And moreover, we can take comfort that he isn't missing anything and that we can rest that his justice will be served. That's the first of the divine insights that he receives from coming back to God. The second is also very interesting, and I'm very, very happy for how honest he is with us. And that's expressed in verses 21 and 22, which is that he says that he was brutish, ignorant, and beastly towards God. Commentators spend a very long time on trying to explain that verse that he was like a beast towards God, but I think you will understand it, I know I understand it, if you've ever been called pig-headed in your life. I was talking with my brother and sister-in-law the other day, and I always laugh that they have a joke that they have, and I experience it when I spend time with them. When my brother is sometimes very obnoxiously, but knowing himself just kind of acts particularly obnoxiously or says something particularly wrong, and my sister-in-law, his wife, calls him an ape. And I think if you get that, you understand what Asaph is talking about. Asaph admits readily that he had doubts, and he admits readily that he was struggling, but he also admits that even though, verse 21, he was vulnerable and he was sensitive, that doesn't give him a reason to not repent. That doesn't excuse him from questioning Almighty God. Yes, periods of struggle are inevitable, but that doesn't mean they're commendable. And it doesn't mean that they're acceptable either. Repentance is still an essential means of the Christian coming back to God and understanding this world. Proverbs 28.13 likewise says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. One very interesting character in the history of Israel is King Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah was an interesting king because there were many kings in Israel who were very, very good, and there were many kings in Israel who were very, very bad. And Hezekiah is a very medium human example of a king. He is remembered as a good king, but he also had some very serious problems and made some mistakes. But that didn't, charge, that didn't change his mind to charge the people of God with this charge in 2 Chronicles 30, verses 8 and 9, to tell them, the people of God, what it was to come to God. And he said this, Do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever. And serve the Lord your God, that his fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful. He will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. 
Hezekiah knew that the face of God was always and ever with his people. And so after his repentance, he comes to this third and so encouraging conclusion, which is this, that God is near to his people. God is near to his people. God's intimacy and his imminence is a most powerful detractor from even the most desirous loves of this world because the wealth of God proves them to be much lesser loves and not nearly so good and sweet as it is to have communion with God. Verses 23 and 24 explain the nearness of God as a present guide. If those of you who are in Roots remember when we went through the book of Hosea, you'll remember in chapter 11, verses 3, when God describes himself as a father, he describes himself as someone who taught them how to walk, who took them up in their arms. That's exactly the idea that Asaph is mentioning here. That earthly prosperity has never gained what the Christian gains with intimacy with God, which is a fatherly, dedicated, parental love that never, ever leaves. Even the struggles of this world have a purpose. And for the Christian, one of those purposes is to culminate and cultivate a greater dependence and appreciation of God as a shepherd that you experience problems, but you get through those problems and you trust God more on the other side. That no amount of vanity, no amount of material wealth that this world gains you at all will ever compare to the eternal worth and weight of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And he explains that further in verses 25 and 26 to explain that it is a greater privilege to be with God than anything else in this world. If you read verses 25 and 26, and if you know your Old Testament, this sounds very similar to something Moses reminded the people of God in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 7. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7, Moses reminded the people that what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And the answer is no one. No one has a God like our God because there is no other God like our God who is so near to his people. 1 John chapter 2.17 says that the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. No joy in this world can say without a doubt that it will last forever. It will end. But true joy that is found in Jesus Christ proves itself greatest because it lasts the longest. It lasts for eternity. Verse 26 is such a powerful verse in particular because it explains the duality of both of these aspects of the nearness of God. God is near to us both as a guide and as a gift. That he's our strength and he's our portion. He's our allotted amount. He's always enough. And the question that we should have after reading verse 26 is this, that why would I desire anything in this world? Because compared to God, it's absolutely nothing. Verses 27 and 28 reveal the final aspect of this nearness of God. 
which is that salvation itself is defined by nearness to God. Nearness to God is a metaphorical way of just explaining that someone is saved, that they have experienced salvation. Hebrews chapter 4, 16 likewise says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. The work of Jesus Christ was the ultimate example of this nearness of God. That God himself needed to become man and did become man to dwell with us. Not just to explain a perfect life, but to live a perfect life as a sacrifice for us who do not live perfect lives, but need a perfect life to be with the Holy God. And not only in his perfect living, but in his innocent dying, in him taking and receiving the punishment that we as sinners deserve, we might be near to God. And because of that, and because we know that Christ may empathize with us in our weakness, just like he says in Hebrews, we know that God knows what it is to suffer. But it is a qualification. It is a necessity. And none of that suffering is anything in comparison to the suffering that the wicked will receive. And that's the interesting point that the psalmist concludes with. In verse 27, he states the concern for the end of the wicked very obviously by saying that those who are far away from you shall perish. But then he says this about the wicked. And he suggests something very, very interesting about how we take this psalm, be comforted, and determine what we should do with it actively in this world. Verse 28 reads, But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Verse 28 asks the question, Why did God bring Asaph near to him again? It was to comfort him. It was to help answer his question, but it was also this, that he would tell of all the works of God. The reality is that we were once the wicked. We might not have prospered, all of us, but we were still wicked. And as a result, no matter how wicked a person around you might prosper, we know that they don't really prosper. And no matter how envious we would desire to be of them, in reality, spiritual insight should make us empathetic with them. It should make us pity them because they don't know eternal wealth and they won't receive eternal wealth. And so our duty is not to leave from this text and be comfortable with the annihilation of the wicked as if that were a joyful thing. It is good to know that God is just and he will punish people deservingly. But if we would not be people who would be empathetic to preach the gospel of the nearness of God to those who are wicked, then it's probably evidence that we don't really understand the kind of grace that we have already received. And it certainly doesn't reveal to us that we actually understand how wicked we once were. It is very good to be near God. And we are called to tell even prosperous, wicked people that the love of God is available to them. 
Likewise, Christ says in Luke chapter 6, verse 35, Christ tells the people to love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. And this is the key. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. It's shocking to understand that God would condescend to us so greatly in Christ as to save our souls. But it is good to know that he has and that that is available to others. And witnessing the transformation of other people, recognizing the comfort they have, whether they are a wicked who prospers or an innocent person needing to know that justice on an objective divine level really does exist. We have answers for both of those people, which is that Jesus Christ saves sinners. And that gives us encouragement for us and for any evangelistic purpose that we should have as we become edified and encouraged by how good it is to be near God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the unfathomable depths of your grace and kindness towards us. It is very good to be near you, and it is very good to worship you. Thank you so much for the ways that you have blessed us in your Son, Jesus Christ. You have blessed us with the endowment of your Holy Spirit, and you have blessed us with the teaching of your Word. Thank you, God, for your uprightness and your holiness and your perfection. And thank you for the way that you have condescended us to save us. And that no matter how hard it is to answer questions in this world, you do have answers for them. And you have told us that resting in you might grant us peace and comfort and give us more zeal to share that message with others. Thank you for this church and these precious saints. And thank you for the opportunity that we have to be edified together by such an encouraging word from Psalm 73. It is so good to be near you. Let us start our years with knowing that you are good to us as sinners and you have an eternal home waiting for us past this period. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen.